Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 108. Oh, stretch those muscles. It's so good to be back. Thank you for listening. Uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No. Oh, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their or the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Mayuki Ishikawa, a Japanese midwife and serial killer who is believed to have murdered somewhere around 100 infants with the aid of several accomplices through the 1940s. Ooh, all right. Before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, don't have much else to say about that. <laughs> well, Not that much is, going on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we, we must, maybe we're talking about this off mic, but what happened in, Reese, in, in early January was so um, shocking. Yeah, yeah. That um, there could have been things that have happened in the news in the past week that just weren't shocking like um uh it's like when you try drugs or like you um have a habit or an addiction to something and it's like nothing the same amount doesn't do it anymore like i'm not (laughs) shocked -shocked. (laughs) by the news like "Hmm, yeah there's there's the news there's don lemon saying something i don't (laughs) i don't know i my 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 ability to be shocked is is gone so the news is obsolete. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we are recording this on MLK Day. And right. um, yeah, what's interesting to note is that we have um, come pretty far 
but we, boy, do we have a long way to go. Agreed. um, Yeah, we all just have to keep um, doing our part. Um, I sat my black ass at home. I do not work on Martin Luther King Day. Uh, It is supposed to be a day of staying home, but a day of service or a day of doing um, doing something in the name of progress, just social justice, or resistance. And right. um, I'm just going to keep it 100 with the folks listening. Wendy, um, I quit. I, I quit drinking in October, and my form of resistance was staying sober. So oh, anyway, wow. yeah. So good for you. Um, you so that's that's what my black behind did uh and uh let us know how you celebrated mlk day now we're going to move on to the listener letter portion of our show where are you angels oh that's a little angels (laughs) they've been on vacation so they yeah they're coming in slow how to do their jobs <laughs> oh there you are there they are <laughs> all right what's in the bag beth well we got an itunes review from potty high titled hip-hop air horns to this podcast hell yeah and they said i feel like i found this late but catching up has been a blast i've been listening all weekend and love 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 it i wish i heard sooner because this is everything for me right now a gap certainly filled. Both voices don't annoy me. Thank you. Ooh, thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> and the historical content is nicely done. You brave and empowering women are my goals. And thank you for bringing crime stories with this unique, scary, but true way. And thank you, Potty High. Thank you. Oh, we love it. Yeah. What else is in that bag? We got a Facebook message from Katie who said, came across this podcast because of Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad's recommendation. I have been binging ever since. I love Wendy and Beth and they make me laugh every day. (laughs) Even if I look like a crazy person cracking up to myself in the car. (laughs) And uh, I do that too. Not to our own podcast, but other podcasts. Hell yeah. (laughs) I love that they're shedding light to the fact that not all killers are white dudes. Dudes. Keep up the good work, ladies. Hip hop air horns for you both. And oh, thank you, Katie. Yes, thank you, Katie. And hip hop air horns to you, too, boo. Yeah. We see you out there cackling in your car. <laughs> We also got a voicemail, and I'm not sure if they wanted us to play it or not, so we're not going to play it. Um, We wanted to say thank you so much for your voicemail. You didn't leave your name or your pronouns, but we see you, boo. And uh, we are recording this, as we said, on MLK Day. And uh, we appreciate our Fruity's perspective. I think 2020 has awakened a consciousness in people who were privileged enough to be asleep or ignorant to the realities of white supremacy. Um, now, a lot of the voicemail was uh, about how we talk about white people mm-hmm. and we do poke fun at the the whites and the Karens um, and it, it's really poking fun. We're not yeah. um, we don't hate white people. No, <laughs> I'm <we don't>. white. <laughs> Wendy and- is my friend. Uh, she likes white people. She has a white husband. Yeah. Her kids are biracial. So it, it's not that we hate white people. We just poke fun and uh, yeah. we can't and won't apologize for going in on white supremacy, which oppresses BIPOC women, LGBTQ, disabled, poor and non-Christian. And it's clear to me and uh, to Wendy, too. <laughs> that, that, um, that's why Beth is the best white lady in the whole <laughs> rap game. <laughs> that history is present. Uh, we've made some progress, but there is so far to go. And we can't talk about it like it's happened in the past because it happened like 10 minutes ago and it's happening now as we speak right so, right. Uh, so yeah we appreciate your your voicemail very much we appreciate yes. your perspective and you deserve hip-hop air horns wish you'd left your name though but here you yeah. go thank you <laughs> all right now we got some patreons and patrons while we were over the break so get mm-hmm. ready for your tunes i may be a little oh, i mean a lot rusty so uh <laughs> Tierra. <clears throat> okay, this one's for you. Checking on Tierra and telling your best friend, like, girl, I think my pod's getting big. Oh, bust, <laughs> bust it, Tierra. Bust it, Tierra. Bust it, Tierra. 
bust it. Yeah, you know the bust it challenge. I anyway, don't. That's right. You know, it's it. People on TikTok and they're like, you know, standing around in their bonnet and their robes, and they're like, I think my butt's getting big, except your parts. And then they and then they drop they drop it low, and it's like this bust it. Oh, it. And then okay. you know they're twerking on my knees could not handle a drop like this these days. <laughs> they drop it low and they're wearing something really sexy and I'm envious. And Tiara, that was for you. So hip hop air horns. Yeah, thank you. Um Leah, this is for you. Nothing can stop us because we got Leah. We got Leah. We got Leah. <laughs> Nothing can stop us because we got Leah. Uh, thank you. Hip hop air horns to you. Yeah, too. Thank you. This is for Aaliyah J. All right. We go in where Aaliyah reside, where Aaliyah reside, where Aaliyah reside, where Aaliyah reside. <laughs> Are you familiar with that tune? Ben? I'm not. Sorry. Where the money reside? No. The, where the money reside guy that gets out the back of his truck? Come on. Have you heard of a thing called the internet? (laughs) Sorry, not familiar with that one. Sorry. Leah Day, thank you. Oh, wait, that was for Leah. Oh, no, that was for Aaliyah Day. Okay, this next one is for Britta. If you're thinking you're too cool for true crime, get on up on the floor cause we're gonna Britta in a in a till you just can't Britta no more Britta Britta no more <laughs> that is for you Miss Britta thank you yeah uh, thank you and this one is for Sparkles Brandon ready I'm ready okay here we go people of the world today we are looking for a better way of life say we are a part of the Sparkles Brandon hey <laughs> Are you familiar with that tune? Oh my God, that's Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation. Sorry. Oh my God. Okay. Whoa, Beth. Oh, me. Oh my. Too old. Well, we thank all of y'all for supporting our show. It means a lot to us. And I, I, yeah, thank I you. really have fun doing these, <laughs> these tunes. Um, so I hope you enjoyed them. Um, so before we get into our episode, we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk or hear about sometimes and race can be as well. Um, but it's just part of the world that we live in. Uh, open your eyes. And as global <laughs> citizens, we all get to talk about this stuff. Um, it's not just for white people to talk about. It's not just for people of color to talk about, BIPOC people. And we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about all of the things. Um, We're learning all the time. Sometimes we make mistakes, but we cop to it. We learn from it and we just keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy selves. Yeah. Yeah. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. All right. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Mayuki Ishikawa. She was a Japanese midwife and became a serial killer. And she's believed to have killed somewhere around 100 babies with the aid of several accomplices. And this was in the 1940s. Okay. Uh, Miyuki, let me get into some stats here. Oh, my God. We've been away so we're long. So I forgot rusty. how this even goes. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into some stats. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Meow. 
Yuki Ishikawa was born in 1897, unknown which month, and it's also unknown exactly when and where she died. Uh, her AKA is Oni Sanba, which translates to demon midwife. Mm. Uh, the exact number of victims un- is unknown, but it's estimated that her victims numbered between 885 and 169. However, the general estimate is 103. One source I found said she may have killed over 500 infants. Wow. I don't know if that is 100% accurate. Moving along. <laughs> uh, don't fact check me on that. Uh, her victims were infants, but also, you know, her parents, the parents of these infants were victims, the families in the community, right? Um, we don't know the names of the victims uh, and, and uh, or the names of the families, but we feel that a resounding rest in power, y'all, is in order. Yeah. Uh, her crimes took place from April 1944 to January 1948 in Japan, and Miss Ishikawa was apprehended on January 15th, 1948. So okay. now we're going to dive into the setting. Just a heads up, this is a pretty... Um, Oh my God, there's so much history around history, this, yeah. the world around this time. Yeah. Um, so we We're uh, just going to touch on it. Really. Going to touch on it, uh, but it's a history rich um, episode. So, yes, it uh, is. Here we go. Let's just get into it. So, Japan consists of thousands of small islands, which I did not know. Thousands. I, mean, I know. I had no clue. Yeah. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it has four major ones. Tokyo is on the biggest island. Our story takes place in. Miyazaki, the capital city of Miyazaki Prefecture in Kyushu, which is one of the major islands. In Japan, infanticide has a history going back more than 1,000 years. It became prevalent during the feudal Edo era, that's 1603 to 1868, as a means of population control. Farmers killed their second or third sons upon birth in what was called mabiki, or an agricultural term meaning thinning out. According to a New York Times article, daughters were often spared because they could be married off, sold as servants or sex workers, or sent off to become geisha, also known as professional entertainers. But in northern Japan alone, between 60,000 and 70,000 cases of mibiki were recorded each year. Wow. That's a lot. That is staggering. From the 1790s to the 1870s, and especially in Eastern Japan, infanticide became a central topic of the public conversation. Opponents of infanticide produced policy proposals and pamphlets in haunting illustrations or with haunting illustrations. Whoa. While acceptance expressed itself less in writing and more in the actual act of infanticide and speaking ill of neighbors with too many children. Proponents of infanticide Fantaside also articulated their logic in a number of widely shared metaphors. The most famous of these likened infants to rice plants, some of which needed to be uprooted as seedlings to give their siblings the space and light to thrive, a.k.a. Mabiki. I almost spit out all of my tea in my mouth when you said that. <laughs> When Japan began to modernize in the latter third of the 19th century, Mabiki was prohibited by law. Japan's leaders encouraged population growth as both industry and the armed forces expanded. But for villagers, poverty often left them with no other resort. By 1850, the majority of women north and east of Edo were obliged to report their pregnancies to authorities. That's creepy. Wow. Handmaid's Tale style. Yeah, no kidding. And the majority of the poor could apply for subsidies to rear their children. This set a demographic revolution in motion. In the 18th century, the consensus of many villages in eastern Japan was that parents could, and under many circumstances, should kill some of their newborns. The people of Eastern Japan brought up so few children that each generation was smaller than the one that went before it. By contrast, in 1850, a typical couple in the same region raised four or five children, and a long period of population growth began. By the 1820s, the average woman had six children, and in eastern Japan and elsewhere in the nation, overpopulation at home actually became an argument for expansion abroad. Interesting. Yeah. Our case takes place in Japan in the wake of World War II. We are familiar with World War II, right? It's that global thing that took place that one time on September 1st of 1939 to September 1945. After the First World War ended in 1918, the political and economic instability in Germany allowed for the rise of Adolf Hitler. Ever heard of him? 
Uh, yeah, he's the leader of the Nazi party. Nazism came before Hitler. Nazis were influenced by the far right in Germany and believed in anti-Marxism, anti-liberalism, anti-Semitism, nationalism. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. It does. Scary. <laughs> and so yeah, terrified. and contempt for the Treaty of Versailles, which was the 1919 peace settlement that ended World War One and required Germany to make numerous concessions and reparations. Um, very uh, side note, personal question. You don't have to answer me. You can actually tell me to shut the fuck up, Wendy. But did your dad did your dad fight in World War II? He was in the army during World War II. He never uh, saw battle. Oh, okay. Still very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> Thanks, Papa Papa Beth. Uh, <laughs> Hitler joined the party the year it was founded and became its leader in 1921. In 1933, he became Chancellor of Germany, and his Nazi government soon assumed dictatorial powers. Hitler rearmed Germany, Germany, and signed strategic strategic treaties with Italy and Japan to further his ambitions of world domination, which sounds wild to say out loud i know <laughs> to even nuts. have the thought in your brain sounds even crazier yeah but, what the fuck man yeah not, no not not to not to like mental illness shame because boy do i have a whole host of uh issues but i i, I and i i it just is um a hard uh to a hard coupling of hard words to understand to yeah, yeah why understand. why do you want that yeah <laughs> i don't i don't get it Man, I don't even want to like be in charge of myself, let alone the whole world. (laughs) (laughs) And we are oversimplifying the matter, but over the course of the conflict, 40 to 50 million people were killed, including 6 million Jews murdered in Nazi concentration camps as part of Hitler's final solution, also known as the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is sort of a a related, but I've learned from interviews uh, and, and I finally read the book. I'm reading Cast, and I read Warmth of Other Suns um, by Isabel Wilkerson, who um, has said that during Hitler's rise to power, they sent German Nazis to the southern United States when they were exploring how to craft the division of people based on race. And they saw what the white ruling class came up with in terms of Jim Crow Crow laws. And they were like, whoa, y'all are wildin'. That is way too extreme, (laughs) which is wild, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it was actually the one drop rule that the Nazis found too extreme. Mm. And uh, the one drop rules stipulated that anyone with any black ancestry was legally black, like one drop of black blood and you're black. Yeah. So instead of using that method when classifying classifying who is Jewish and who is not, the Nazis decreed that a Jewish person was anyone who had three or more Jewish grandparents. Okay. When the Nazis set out to uh, the Nazis, when the Nazis. Nazis set out to legally disenfranchise and discriminate against Jewish citizens, they closely studied the laws of the United States. According to James Q. Whitman, who is a professor at Yale Law School and author of a book titled Hitler's American Model, America in the 20th century was the leading racist jurisdiction in the world. Uh, Nazi lawyer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not surprised, but boy, is it shocking to see it in front of my eyes. In print, yeah. yeah. Nazi lawyers, as a result, were interested in, looked very closely at, and were ultimately influenced by American race law. That's nothing to be proud of. Um, no, nothing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm like uh, speechless. <laughs> yeah. Without words, except for what you wrote in the script. What's next? Yeah. <laughs> In particular, Nazis admire the Jim Crow era laws that discriminated against black Americans and segregated them from white Americans, and they debated whether to introduce similar segregation in Germany, but they ultimately decided that it wouldn't go far enough. Mm. According to Whitman, one of the most striking Nazi views was that Jim Crow was a suitable racist program in the United States because suitable, suitable, right. Uh, Oh, boy. A racist program in the United States, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm like shaking my head, like, 
trying to get the stench of these these awful these words, yeah, Ooh. these ideas. Yeah, so a suitable racist program in the United States because American blacks were already oppressed and poor, he says. But in then in Germany, by contrast, where the Jews, as the Nazis imagined it, were rich and powerful, and it is necessary to take to take more severe measures. Because of this, Nazis were more interested in how the U.S. had designated Native Americans, Filipinos, and other groups as non-citizens, even though they lived in the U.S. or its territories. These models influenced the citizenship portion of the Nuremberg Laws, which stripped Jewish Germans of their citizenship and classified them as, quote, nationals. One component of the Jim Crow era that Nazis thought they could translate into Germany were anti-miscegenation rules, which prohibited interracial marriages in 30 of 48 states. According to, that's what we celebrate the loving decision. According right. to Whitman, America had by a wide margin the hardest, harshest law of this kind. In particular, some of the state laws threatened severe criminal punishment for interracial marriage. That was something radical Nazis were very eager to do in Germany as well. The idea of banning Jewish and Aryan marriages presented the Nazis with a problem. How can you tell who was Jewish and who was not? Race and ethnic categories are socially constructed, and interracial relationships produce offspring who don't neatly fall into one box. Again, the Nazis look to America. Not our best, not our best moment. Not no, our best work. Not a good look. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so obsessed with Isabel Wilkerson and her writings right now. But she talks about um, how uh, race is like, uh, it's like we have this old house and we didn't pick the house, but now we live in it, right? So we are responsible for, you know, whatever problems this old house is. And she describes... Um, race as like the skin and bones of this terrible, hateful body or this it's the skin of the, the this terrible, hateful, discriminatory body. Um, but that class is the bones. Mm. Um, and I thought that was interesting. That is a really it, interesting analogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the Nuremberg laws came up with a system of determining who belonged to what group by their grandparents, which allowed them to criminalize marriage and sex between Jew Jewish and Aryan people. Whitman notes, quote, American racial classification law was much harsher than anything the Nazis themselves were willing to introduce into Germany. End quote. And whoo. That's yeah. without words again. Yeah. <laughs> and this is from a history.com article. It should come as no surprise then that the Nazis weren't uniformly condemned in the U.S. before the country entered the war. In the early 1930s, American eugenicists welcomed Nazi ideas about racial purity and republished their propaganda. Oh, American aviator Charles Lindbergh actually accepted a swastika medal from the Nazi party in 1938. Oh, my God. Uh with pride? With pride, <laughs> I think, with yeah. Pride? Ooh. Uh, once the U.S. entered the war, it took a decidedly anti-Nazi stance. But Black American troops noticed the similarities between the two countries and confronted them head on with a, quote, double V campaign, end quote. Its goal was victory abroad against the Axis powers and victory at home against Jim Crow. Uh, just thinking about that. <laughs> it, 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 it is wild. And um, yeah. There were a lot of race wars when these World War One and World War Two veterans who are black and bl came brown back. came yeah. back because they were treated with respect in these other countries. Like, right. They weren't black when they went abroad. They were American. And right. then they come back and then they're treated like shit. Like but they, they're like, yeah. but I shouldn't be because I served, too. And I'm a citizen, y'all. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. you were without words. And so was I. What's <laughs> next? <laughs> anyway, back to World War Two in Japan. So Britain was combating the Germans who were wilding out in Europe. <laughs> yep. At the time, the U.S. was just chilling when in December of 1941, Japan, already at war with China, attacked British, Dutch and American territory 
territories in Asia and the Pacific. On December 7th, 1941, 360 Japanese aircraft attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, which at the time was a U.S. territory or colony and not yet a state. But this was the impetus that brought the U.S. into the World War, uh, which it had previously resisted. By June 1942, Japanese conquests encompassed a vast area of Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific. Under Japanese occupation, prisoners of war and enslaved civilians were forced to work for their captors in harsh and often inhumane conditions. War is just so awful. Awful. Um, can't we just g- get along and talk to each other? Diplomacy? Anybody? Um At the same time, the U.S. government was rounding up Japanese-American citizens and putting them in concentration camps in the United States. Uh, In the immediate aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack, more than 1,200 Japanese community leaders were arrested, and the assets of all accounts in the U.S. branches of Japanese banks were frozen. On March 31, 1942, Japanese-Americans along the West Coast were ordered to report to control stations and register the names of all family members. Mm. They were then told when and where they should report for removal to an internment camp. You know, in elementary school, we had a speaker come who, uh, it was a teacher at my school whose father, so her father came and uh, talked about his experience. He was in one of these camps. Yeah, it was horrifying. And little Wendy at the time was like, what the fuck, America? (laughs) Uh, yeah, you know, I I didn't learn about these camps until I was a teenager, mm. and I did not learn it at school. I learned it from my mom. So, oh, interesting. interesting. I don't think they talked about it a whole lot. Yeah, uh, but it didn't it, happen that long ago when you think about oh. it. So, I was in elementary school in the nineties, right? And this yeah. happened in. 40-something. So, yeah. yeah. So less than a generation ago. And it's just right. it, horrible things happen. And then people were like, let's just not talk Bury about it. it. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, like it didn't happen or it'll go away. And that's not how not, things get better. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Japanese Americans were given uh, from four days to about two weeks to settle their affairs and gather as many belongings as they could carry. In many cases, individuals and families were forced to sell all of their property, including businesses within that period of time. And then, uh, not surprisingly, some Euro-Americans took advantage of the situation, buying Mm. possessions from those who were being forced to move for very little money. Many homes and businesses worth thousands of dollars were sold for substantially less than that. That is really disgusting. Hello, my fellow man. Come on. Uh, Nearly 2,000 Japanese Americans were told that their cars would be safely stored until they returned. However, the U.S. Army soon offered to buy the vehicles at cut rate prices and Japanese Americans who refused to sell were told that the vehicles were being requisitioned for the war. Yeah. 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 Between 1942 and 1945, a total of 10 camps were opened, holding approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans for varying periods of time in California, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and Arkansas. On December 18th, 1944, the government announced that all relocation centers would be closed by the end of 1945. The last of the camps, the high security camp at uh, Tule Lake in California, was closed in March of 19. 1946. But let's get back to the war. Yeah. A series of land battles were fought by the Japanese in China, Burma, and New Guinea. Although Japan achieved early successes, its resources were overstretched. By contrast, America was able to mobilize huge economic resources to intensify its efforts, beginning with amphibious landings in the Pacific. Tokyo and other Japanese cities suffered unprecedented destruction by conventional bombing. Finally, after atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Japan uh, then surrendered in August of 1945. The post-war American occupation, which occurred between 1945 and 1952, transformed Japanese society. Japan adopted a new constitution, which declared that sovereignty rested with the people, not the emperor. The emperor was to continue as a symbol of Japanese unity and culture, somewhat like the Queen of England in Britain's democracy, but without any political authority whatsoever. That's okay. Meghan Markle is still, I'll do whatever she she tells me to do. (laughs) 
Uh, women were given equal rights under the new constitution, including the right to vote. The constitution established many new civil liberties, such as the right to free speech. Finally, the military forces were completely abolished and Article 9 of the new constitution forbade Japan to maintain an army or go to war ever again. Come on, Wes. (laughs) (laughs) In Japan, a baby boom occurred between 1947 and 1949. In that time, there were over 2.5 million babies born per year for three years for a total of 8 million. The 2.69 million births in 1949 are the largest ever in post-war statistics. Wow, we that's yeah. a lot of knocking lot of the babies. boots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the people born in this period are called the baby boom generation. And forgive my Japanese, I don't speak it. Um, but I will try Dankai no Sedai, which means the generation of nodule. And infanticide reappeared. We talked about it at the top of the episode, hitting a peak in 1948 when 399 cases were recorded. This was just the ones that were recorded. Uh, An important fact to note is that abortion was also illegal at this time. True terrors of horror bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart, It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. vigilante I have a question for you what would you do if someone you cared about was abducted taken from you would you call me would you care about how I got them back download American Vigilante, now. So now we are going to get into Miyuki Ishikawa's early life. Hit it, Beth. Other than her year and location of birth, we know not much else about Ishikawa's childhood. Mayuki Ishikawa was born in 1897 in the small southern town of Kunitomi in the Miyazaki Prefecture. After graduating from a prefectural vocational school, she moved to Tokyo at the age of 18 to go to university. She was uh, very well educated, apparently. She graduated from the University of Tokyo, which is apparently a very prestigious university, uh, where she studied midwifery. Uh, She was a graduate of the University of Tokyo's Hospitals Midwifery Training Center, and she was the director of the Yushingome branch of the Tokyo Metropolitan Midwifery Association. At the age of 23, she married 
Takashi Ishikawa. They had no children. Mayuki worked at the Kotobuko Maternity Hospital as a midwife. She worked her way up and eventually became the director of the and eventually became the director of the Kotobuki Maternity Hospital in Ushigomi, which was a neighborhood in Tokyo. Miyuki also served as a chairman of the Ushigome Midwifery Association, and she ran for the Shinjuku Ward Assembly member election from the Liberal Democratic Party but was rejected. So she was ambitious and successful. Mayuki's husband, Takashi Ishikawa, was born in Ibaraki Prefecture. After dropping out of a local agricultural school after two years, he volunteered to become a military police sergeant and later served as a police officer. After quitting the police, he began to... Here's a literal translation. (laughs) Boy, researching is so fun. Uh, Quote, Live in the left-handed fan while being laid on Miyuki's ass, end quote. <laughs> Not really sure what that means, but we ran it by someone who speaks Japanese, and they thought it meant he was living a comfortable life off of Miyuki. But if you speak Japanese and are listening, please tell us your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Also, one translation. It was funny uh, getting messages from you because you were like, I just found the funniest translation. <laughs> Uh, One translation described a scene where, quote, oranges were riding a bicycle, end quote. And we'd love to know what in the Sam hell that means. Uh, So now we are going to hop on into the timeline. Hop on in the timeline. Let's do the timeline again. again. Yeah. In 1945, the economic situation of Japan was dire. The country was suffering from a social crisis due to the traumatic consequences of being in a war, the atomic bomb, and the economic turmoil every country experiences during and right after war. There were severe food and shelter shortages. In addition, as we mentioned, there was a big baby boom going going on. Right. And I should also add, I know we have international listeners, right? But the U.S. has been in a lot of wars. We've got two going on right now. Um, And it's very hard, I think, for Americans to fathom war being fought on your shores, right? Yeah. War is devastating, but um, Americans never see... not that we lives lives of are lost of of loved ones etc but the fight is never right on here. on our the shores physical yeah. Fight. yeah exactly um birth control was illegal although condoms could be used as a means of protection from venereal disease so condoms and abstinence were the most widely used forms of contraception and well condoms are not a hundred percent and abstinence is unrealistic especially for married couples right who had been separated you know during the war and like right. you know hubby comes home like yeah just you know, not not you know the vibes. realistic yeah, yeah. <laughs> Abo- as we said abortion was illegal and doing anything to prevent a pregnancy was severely punished even more so than the death of a child out of neglect which is wow. fucked up wow so many couples found themselves in the position of having children that they were simply unable to financially take care of as we mentioned miyuki work as a director of the Kotobuki Maternity Hospital in Ushingome, she could see firsthand that the birth rate was increasing dramatically. And she noticed how many couples were anxiety ridden because they barely had the money to take care of themselves, if even that, and charitable resources were sparse. Mayuki began to think that the best solution was to allow all of these unwanted newborn babies to die, since, she reasoned, that was better than living a life of misery, disease, and suffering. Maternity hospitals in Japan at the time also often worked as orphanages, so in many cases the parents asked her to take the babies because they were unable to support them. But, uh, you know, they thought the babies would be adopted or, you know, raised in the orphanage, something like that. Yeah, I'm just picturing, dear diary, I'm noticing that the birth rate is increasing at a staggering pace. Hang on a second. I've got the greatest idea. (laughs) Hey, pregnant lady, have I got a business proposition for you? Are you ready to, are you ready to change your life? Um, I don't know how all 
that conversation went, but maybe yeah. we'll get it. Well, here we go. So Miyuki began to allow these babies to die through neglect. Her practices weren't that secret, and many of the other midwives working at the hospital knew what she was doing. Many condemned it and resigned, but nobody really did anything to stop her. Miyuki soon realized that she needed help. She enlisted the help of Dr. Shiro Nakayama and her husband. Mayuki Ishikawa would take care of the killings, and Dr. Nakayama was in charge of creating false death certificates. And then her husband went around asking the parents for large sums of money, telling them that it would be cheaper to pay them to take the children rather than raising them. So maybe things would have um, maybe continued even longer if oh, for sure. they yeah. hadn't gotten so greedy. Uh, in addition, they received staple food distributions for the babies from the government and sake, which held a vital role in religious festivities, commemorating everything from birth to death for the funerals of the babies. So they profited from that and sometimes gave the sake to people in the hospital to hush them up. Um, so now we are going to get into the investigation and arrest. What do you got, Beth? On January 12th, 1948, two police officers from the Waseido precinct in Tokyo were patrolling when funeral director Ryutaro Nagasaki was seen carrying a box. The police were suspicious, and I don't really know why they were suspicious, but maybe funeral directors don't walk around with boxes. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> but they were suspicious, and when they examined the box that Nagasaki had placed on a loading platform at the funeral home, they found the corpse of a baby in a knitted shirt and a diaper. Mm. Nagasaki told them that the body came from Kotobuki Maternity Hospital and that he was preparing to cremate it. The funeral shop had four other such wooden boxes, and police discovered a total of five recently deceased babies in the boxes. Examination of the bodies of the National First Hospital revealed that they, that three had died of pneumonia and malnutrition, and the other two had frozen to death. Furthermore, as a result of dissection at Kayo Hospital, it was found that there was no food in the stomachs of these babies. Nagasaki was taken to the police station and interrogated. He told the police that he had been taking bodies from the hospital since August of the previous year and that he had taken more than 20 bodies. He received a burial fee of 500 yen per person from the hospital. It was then discovered that a large number of children had died at the hospital. Mm. When police came to the hospital to investigate, they found seven babies, one of which had already died, and the rest were so weak that they couldn't even cry. That is uh, sad. Yeah, that is that, that really hits uh, hits the tugs at the heartstrings. An yeah. estimated 103 babies had died at the hospital. And on January 15th, 1948, Miyuki Ishikama and her uh, Ishikawa, sorry, and her husband, Takashi Ishikawa, were arrested. While they were being interrogated and they were waiting for trial, the investigation led the officers and detectives to a temple where they found about 30 babies' bodies buried on the premises and about 40 in a mortician's house. All had died in the same way as the first five that they had found. That is so many bodies. Yeah. Miyuki later declared at trial that she had nothing to do with these children and that the most likely explanation was that the parents had actually abandoned them out of their desperate economic situation. Soon after, Ishikawa's assistant, Masako Takashi, was also arrested on suspicion of murder. The funeral director, Nagasaki, was released due to insufficient evidence. It was uncovered during the investigation that although the hospital received rations for the babies, they were not fed and were allowed to die due to neglect. So they just left the babies to die, did not have anything to do with them, did not feed them, and they just died. Just, yeah. I mean, um, I can't I can't even imagine um, there must have been a lot of crying involved. I mean, yeah. right, a baby will scream and scream and scream. And then when they realize nobody's coming, they just stop. And then to be yeah. too weak um, to uh, cry or um, ex express that something's wrong, like, that is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. Well, during trial, 
Miyuki argued that the parents who deserted the children were responsible for their deaths. This had some effect on the jury, and she was accused of the crime of omission instead of murder. In fact, this defense received support from a large section of the public, a fact that was reflected in Japanese law, which gave infants almost zero rights. Wow. Mm-hmm. Consequently, on October 11th, 1948, Mayuki was sentenced to only eight years in prison. For their part, Mayuki's husband and Dr. Shiro Nakayama, the doctor who wrote the false death certificates for the children, was they were both sentenced to four years each. Uh, and then when I guess when you realize that infants don't have rights, um, the number makes sense, but it still is yeah. uh, alarming. Pretty sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ishikawa's assistant, uh, Masako Takashi, was acquitted. Ryutaro Nagasaki, the funeral director who was involved in the scheme, was never charged. Generally in Japan, conviction rates are high and sentences are not as lengthy as they are in the U.S. Mayuki and her husband later appealed to the Tokyo High Court and they managed to have their sentences through the appeal. So Mayuki actually only served four years and her husband only served two. Hmm. Well, look at that. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, D-E-A-D dead. But before (laughs) her death, she got out of prison. Uh, As we said, she only served four years and she stayed married to her husband. They never had kids, probably a good thing. And the surviving infants were returned to their parents or were adopted. But about half were left in an orphanage. Due to the number of murders, Mayuki Ishikawa is considered the most prolific serial killer in the history of Japan. A second maternity hospital incident occurred in Yodobashi Maternity Hospital in Tatsukamashi, Shinjuku-ku, where 61 infants died of neglect and malnutrition. Yeah, um, you got to think of the times, right? Um, Right. But still very devastating. These cases caused such an impact that some laws changed in Japan. For instance, the government actually started discussing abortion. The subject had been taboo previously, and by 1949, it became legal under special economic circumstances. In addition, contraceptive use was approved on April 30th, 1949. So now we're going to get into our takeaways. That's it for the story, y'all. And uh, what we think uh, led Ishikawa down this path. And uh, although not uh, common, I think there is a population of people in medicine who are fucking sadists. Killer (laughs) nurses, don't get me started on those dudes on the Dr. Death podcast. Um, And I think throughout history, I... I Somebody sent us a case idea of a black doctor who was involved in this kind of thing in Philly. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and so I I think there is an element of this uh, happening with people who get into medicine. Not all, right? They all take this oath that's saying they're not going to do. Yeah, any harm. some of them really want to help people, but yeah, some of them that. are Just- narcissistic and mm-hmm. they feel like you know whatever they think is the best. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just an it's an the psychology of it is very interesting. Yeah. Um, So what may have begun for at least for uh, um, Yuki as a favor here and there in the face of hardship, you know, family struggling, I see you guys are hungry with new pregnancies and births, you know, may they, they may not have been in a position to make sound decisions. It's it is hard when you're struggling with um figuring out when your next meal is going to be or dealing with for reals poverty poverty to make sound decisions um in the face of hardship right and um everybody's goal was trying to survive uh and um i I think at one point miyuki was trying to minimize suffering not an not an excuse right explanation explanation uh and but then she she saw it and she turned it into a business opportunity (laughs) which is disgusting uh See you in hell, Miyuki. Uh, and I kept, I kept wondering um, throughout my research, like, is neglect murder? You know, the babies found dead of natural causes and she didn't like, you know, strangle them, use any ligatures or beat them up or shaken baby syndrome, anything. 
Um, But I think when you get down to it, my my conclusion was neglect of a helpless life is murder. So again, see you in hell, Miyuki. Uh, (laughs) What are your thoughts, Beth? Yeah, so I think uh, that's probably how she rationalized it to herself, that it wasn't murder Mm. if she didn't actively cause their deaths. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, she's going to let them die. It would have been more humane to like smother them because mm. they, they suffered, They did, you yeah. know? Um, and they became so neglected that they could no longer even cry. So there's mm. some mental gymnastics going on there. Uh, but the fact that she didn't actually physically murder them probably helped her defense as fucked up as that is. She didn't actively yeah murder them so i think she that was probably her rationalization yeah um yeah that's yeah. fucked yeah. up but it's super but yeah super yeah. deep super. <laughs> and i found this story interesting in in how uh the regulating of women's bodies can actually do more harm than good mm. um, nobody wants abortion people are not pro-abortion people right. who are pro-choice or just believe there should be a choice because there are situations like these people who are too poor to to raise a child mm-hmm. um you know they should have that choice they're yeah. not like yay abortion oh, hooray. You know, skipping <laughs> skipping to the planned parenthood yeah. Yeah. i can't yeah. wait to exactly. have my abortion yeah, yeah. a lot of no, women who get abortions are already mothers it's it's yeah. raising a and, child and they just can't do it uh-huh. you know um, but this isn't just about abortion, but also about birth control mm-hmm. and how taking away access to birth control can also lead to some really awful consequences. So, yeah, yeah. it was uh, interesting. Definitely an interesting case. Hadn't heard of it before. And glad we got to cover it. Yeah. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So... If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. Yeah. I felt that in my bones. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. And sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Well, this is very episode-centric, very related to the episode. And I just wanted to shout out safe haven laws. Uh, In the U.S., um, I'm not sure if they're in Canada, um, but all 50 states have some form of a safe haven law. And that's where you can, anyone can leave an unharmed infant uh, with a statutorily designated private persons. In some states, it's a hospital. Uh, others, it's a fire station or a police station. So the child becomes a ward of the state. And um, again, when you're f- like fa- facing hardship or postpartum depression, right? Like um, I, I, I remember after having my second kid thinking, where is the nearest fire station? <laughs> I mean, but I was I was really suffering. Um, yeah. And thank goodness I had resources, but um, a lot of people don't. Not, not yeah. everybody does. So yeah, and uh, I don't know all the laws in different countries, but I know uh, some countries have what they call baby hatches. 
um, where you can leave babies. Um, and I believe there is just one in Japan. Wow. Um, whole country. I heard. Yeah. About that. Okay. And wow. There's, I know there's some in uh, Germany. I was reading about that and how in Germany, if you leave a baby, um, they keep it for eight weeks and the mother has those eight weeks. If she changes her mind, wow. she can come back and get it. Wow. Look at all these social safety net. Yeah, no no legal consequences. So I, mm. I think that's that's a really good idea cuz sometimes you're like like the situation you were in with postpartum depression, mm -hmm. uh what if you had left your baby and then like a week later you're like what the fuck did yeah, I just do? I got the you know? resources and the help that I needed and and then realized oh I I this I can it, do this yeah, yeah I I yeah um yeah I, I again imagine um so I think uh those safe haven laws are um a good thing to know about um, right so agreed uh, that's all. Well, yeah, oh. look at it. Look it up in your country and see what's available. For yeah, you. I'm curious what what other countries are up to. Let us know. Um, yeah. So the next part of our show is the shout out portion where we shout out any content uh, by people of color or about people of color uh, or any other or marginalized groups or especially important, any true crime goodies. So yeah. um, I since it's MLK Day, I wanted to shout out MLK slash FBI and it's on Amazon and it's about how the FBI, um, the FBI was like, uh, what is that? Is it Hoover? J. Edgar Hoover? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was like, oh, no, there can't be a black messiah. And <laughs> here comes Martin Luther King fitting the description. And they were like, we got to take this black guy down. Oh, so they man. started like putting bugs in his hotel rooms and um, surveilling him, thinking that we're going to feed this information to the press. We're going to take him down. But it didn't work. Um, <laughs> but it is very interesting because there's a lot of really cool yeah. interviews. Uh, and also... The Night Stalker, The Hunt for the Serial Killer. You yep. watched it? I did, yeah. I'd say that's a true crime goodie, and oh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, oh, I guess I should say what it's about, right? Uh, oh, Richard, yeah. <laughs> Richard Ramirez. Ever heard of him? He is a uh, Latinx serial killer that we've covered on this show. I've, he's one of the most infamous, but he's not a white yeah. dude. And he is terrifying uh, for yes. so many reasons. And this show is um, very centered on the victims um, who are around to talk about it. The people who were alive at the time and the police uh, are also heavily involved in the story. Yeah, they talk a lot about the investigation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you got? Yeah. So Fiona on Facebook recommended BBC's The Serpent miniseries about Charles Sobrage. Oh, yeah. Case, yeah, the case that we covered in episode 43. Now, it's not available in the U.S. yet, but it's um, I guess it's airing on TV in the U.K. right now. Um, it's a series, so I don't know. I th think maybe two or three episodes have aired by now. Mm -hmm. Um but it will be on Netflix in the U.S. I'm not sure when, but uh, watch for that. Oh, and my then, God. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. Me, too. <laughs> also, heads up from Tiffany, who alerted us that Jerry Williams FBI retired case file review podcast will be interviewing John Douglas on January 27th. So what? I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Awesome, Beth. Yeah. I know you are looking forward to that. Nobody, nobody called Beth's phone during that while she's listening. <laughs> she won't answer. <laughs> yeah, and he's been on her her uh, wish list for a long time, so I, I'm sure she's super excited. Woo! The yeah. girls are excited too. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, this has been so much fun, Beth. Yeah. Uh, where can the it feels good to be back? Feels good it to be does. home. Yeah, it does. Uh, but uh, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donate donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean Patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. 
That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.